0: What I want to do now is look at the book of Leviticus. Believe it or not, I spent uh, the better part of three years in the book of Leviticus on Sunday evenings in the church where we now minister, going through uh, this wonderful book. Uh, it's probably not the first book that one would turn to to preach. And certainly I wouldn't recommend that a, a young man fresh out of Bible college or seminary preach the book of Leviticus. He should have a few years of seasoning before you get there. But uh, I want to just share a selection uh, out of this this morning that I can really stand as a one-of and uh, help you uh, understand a little bit about the book of Leviticus, especially as it relates to holiness. Because from stem to stern, that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. It is about holiness and what it means to be holy and what it means to live a holy life before a thrice-holy God. And so I did an entire series entitled The Highway to Holiness. And this particular selection this morning is out of uh, Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. And it's subtitled Where Holiness and Righteous Living Converge. And so we're going to see what it means to be holy and what it means to live holy uh, from the standpoint of these ancient Hebrew believers. So if you take your Bibles and turn to Leviticus 19, let me go ahead and, and read that. Just the first couple of verses there, and we're going to look at a couple of other verses that are closely related. But Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 1, then he says, uh, this is the Lord speaking to Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy." Now just turn over to chapter 20 and verse 26, and we read a very similar passage there uh, at the end of chapter 20 and verse 26. He says, thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. So there we have a a similar saying and he goes on to explain, for this reason you're set apart, which is really the basic definition of what it means to be holy, to be set apart from something to something or someone, in this case the Lord. Turn over with me just to one other passage, Leviticus chapter 11 and verses 44 and 45. Now, this is set in the context of the dietary laws, and, and it begins the, uh, the purity portion or the purity laws of the book of Leviticus that run from chapter 11 through chapter 15. And uh, here he says, beginning in verse 44, "'For I am the Lord your God. "'Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy.'" And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's just ask God to bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, again, what a privilege it is. We have sung to your name, we have prayed, and now we have opportunity to open your word and to try to understand just a bit more of what it means when you say that we are to be holy because you yourself are holy. Father, just dawn on our understanding this morning that we would be able to understand these words more clearly. And understand how they are applied in a new covenant context so that we might be holy as you yourself are holy. For we pray it in the matchless name of your only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I begin this morning, I just ask a a question. I want you to think about it. Does faith demand action? is obedience optional for the believer? Certainly as you read the New Testament epistle of James, James makes a very strong and convincing case for a faith that is actively obedient. When you turn to the small epistle of 1 John near the end of the New Testament, John does something very similar. He's Dealing there with the idea of an active faith, a faith that lives, a faith that has feet and legs and moves. And when we read many of the epistles of Paul, it would be much the same. In fact, last night as I was talking with some of your men, we were talking about how Paul oftentimes moves from doctrine to duty. How he moves from worship to walk. Because that theology that he is so fond of teaching and preaching ultimately is to live. It is to have feet. It is to have hands. It is to be applied to everyday living. If you hear some in certain Christian circles talk today, you would think it is entirely permissible to pray what is called the sinner's prayer and then make claims and professions of a faith that never seems to have any life that's incongruous you see there is a difference between one who professes Christ and one who possesses Christ and what I mean by that is our profession should evidence a possession of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and our Lord himself intimated all of this when he gave the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13 and you might remember the scene there where he, he, he cast the, the story in the scene of a farmer who is casting his seed during the planting season. And as that farmer would distribute that seed with his hands, some of it would fall on hard, compact ground just outside the boundary of the field itself. And that seed would never germinate. In fact, the birds would swoop and they would enjoy a good sumptuous meal on that seed. It had no life. It never brought forth any fruit. Some of the seed fell on ground that had been prepared, but just underneath that prepared soil was a limestone bed. And so as that seed would germinate and it would take root, it would quickly, those roots would quickly meet with that limestone bed underneath and the plant would ultimately die. No blossom, no fruit. Other seed fell amongst the soil that had been prepared and it would take up root, but it had been cast into soil that was surrounded with with weedy fibrils. And those weedy fibrils would ultimately choke out and suffocate the very life of that plant so that it too would never bring forth fruit. But then there was that seed that fell upon the well-prepared soil. And it would germinate. It would sprout. It would ultimately blossom. And it would bring forth fruit. And our Lord tells us that it would bring forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. But the point is not the differing levels of fruit, but that there was some measurable discernible fruit. The point here is simple: saving faith is not meant to be passive, inert, or benign, but rather it is meant to be living, vital, and active. And as we come to Leviticus 19 this morning, what we find is a passage that combines these ideas, that takes the whole notion of what it means to live for God and places it in the context of day-to-day living. In theological terms, we would say, well, this is sanctification, And if that term scares you, it simply means growing in grace, day-to-day living, living out and expressing the profession of faith that you make with your mouth. That's all it means. That's really what Leviticus 19 is all about. It is the crossroads for these ancient Hebrew believers. It's the crossword where their coven, uh, crossroad where their covenantal confession meets with an active covenantal commitment. It's where their verbal assent is practically verified because if we went back to Exodus and we looked at Exodus and we looked at chapters 23 and 24, remember there they said, Lord, all that you have said will do it. So here is where the rubber meets the road. It's important to remember that all of this takes place in a covenant. A covenant that God had made with these ancient people of Israel out in the South Sinai Peninsula shortly after they'd come out of the land of Egypt and through the Red Sea. This would have literally been within weeks or the early months after that when this book was written, when God gave these words to Moses. And in Exodus 19, God begins his covenant with his covenant people Israel. This is an extension of that covenant. And if we had time to read that, the sum of that covenant, we would learn that God called them apart, elected them in grace for the purpose that they would be a light to the pagan nations around them at the very core of God's covenant with ancient Israel was the idea of them reaching out to these pagan ancient Near Eastern communities. In light of that, he gave them 613 laws or stipulations, however you want to look at it. And in chapter 19, we see just a smattering of these laws. So this morning, as I unpack a little bit these first two verses from Leviticus 19, I want us to consider the vital link between holiness, God's divine holiness, and righteous living in the here and now. And I'd like to do so by just looking at six timeless truths concerning holiness and its relationship to ethical living. Let me begin with the first timeless truth concerning holiness. And I say timeless because I understand that this takes place in a context that is 3,500 years removed from our current context. But that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us today in some way. So let's look at these six timeless truths. The first of one is, is this, holiness begins with God. That's self-evident. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. It all begins with God. Holiness is not some indefinable abstraction. It is not something that is meant to be mystical or esoteric or otherworldly. On the contrary, holiness finds its genesis and its source in God himself, the God who made a covenant with these ancient Israelites. And so he is calling them to holiness. Holiness a holiness that is alien to them apart from him. So when we say that holiness begins with God, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, firstly, because holiness begins with God, that means that God himself is the very ground for that holiness. So any holiness of which they might be partakers of comes from his inexhaustible artesian well of holiness. Because holiness circumscribes the entire character of who God is. In fact, when we talk about all of the wonderful matchless attributes of God, we could actually qualify each of them with the adjective holy. When we talk about the truth of God, we can talk about the holy truth of God. When we talk about the kindness of God, we can talk about the holy kindness of God. When we talk about the grace of God, we can talk about the holy grace of God. When we talk about the love of God, we should talk about the holy love of God. And we need to define our terms in the context of God's holiness because holiness, Holiness gilds the entire character and sum of who God is. And when one is in a saving relationship with this incomprehensible, inscrutable God, we need to understand that he graciously communicates holiness to his vessels of grace and mercy. In a sense... God is the one-stop shop for what it means to be holy. So he is the ground of this holiness. Further, because holiness begins with God, it also means that he is not only the ground of holiness, but that he himself is the standard by which holiness is to be measured. In the Hebrew construction here, in verse 2 of Leviticus 19, we could actually translate it this way. Holy shall you be, for holy I am. What we see here is the cause and the effect. But he begins with the effect first, because that's what he's really emphasizing here. He's emphasizing the fact that you are to be holy. Why? Because I myself am holy, he says. And so it's written this way to emphasize the fact that these ancient Jews were to be holy themselves. But it wasn't because of anything that was resident in them. For their holiness is a derived holiness. They were holy and to be holy and to live holy only because he himself is holy and the entirety of his character and person. They're not holy because of some encounter with an ancient Near Eastern guru, their version of the Dalai Lama. On the contrary. So implied in all of this, when we say that he is the ground and that he is the standard, there are some practical outcomes from that. One of the practical outcomes is, because this is not some mere abstraction, holiness is expressed in the 613 laws that God gave these ancient Jewish people. Every law in some way, some fashion or form, reveals some aspect or facet of the holiness of the God who had called them into this covenant that he made with them. Further, it means that holiness is derived. It is not inherent to us. Either he communicates holiness or it is completely alien and foreign to us. Further, holiness is emphatically enscored. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, there are over 150 references and nuances of holiness from stem to stern. The book is all about a holy God who wants a holy people, a people who live differently, who live on a different, with a different standard, on a different plane, not like those around them. Further, holiness is a state before it's ever in action. You must be before you do. And the only way to be holy is to be in a right relationship with the living eternal God. Further, implied in all of this is holiness is absolute. It is not relative in its makeup. It can be quantified. And the way that it is quantified is through the various laws that God gives them. That serves as a gauge. There are certain things that one does and does not do as a result of being in a holy relationship with a thrice holy God. We live in a world that hates absolutes, don't we? They don't like those distinctions. They don't like contradiction. In fact, one of the terms that is bandied about so often today is fluid. Ethics are in a fluid state. Our morality is in a fluid state. It ebbs and it flows back and forth. Everything is fluid. Nothing is certain. I always like to ask those people, are you certain of that? (laughs) In spite of what the culture around us might have to say, there are those who have been roller skating on the slippery slope of immorality with rocket-powered roller skates, and they've recently taken to cliff diving with nothing below but a concrete landing pad. Those who have called for moral and ethical nonsense have seen that it has come. But the point here in Leviticus 19 is that absolutes exist precisely because God does. Holiness begins with God, it's grounded in Him, He is the standard by which it is measured. Finally, to say that God is holy, or holiness begins with God, is to imply that God, therefore, gets to define what it means. I don't get to define it. God does. Why? Because it's inherent and distinctive to him, unless he chooses to share it. And so he defines it. And the way he defines it is through his law. So holiness begins with God. The second timeless truth of holiness is this. Holiness is a statement of God's exclusivity. It's a statement of his exclusivity. Again in verse 2, let me just read it again. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now again, in the original Hebrew, this conveys the idea of emphasis here. At the very end of verse 2, we could translate it this way. I, and I alone, am your God. I, and I alone am entirely, completely, and utterly, comprehensively holy. It's a stark reminder of their covenant commitment, which they had bound themselves to in the book of Exodus. They didn't have to do like the pagans and the ancient Near Eastern communities had to do, where they had to run around, and they had to broker deals, and they had to lobby their gods and goddesses so that they could hopefully secure the favor of these various gods and goddesses. Ancient Israel had it easy. There was only one God, and to him they must run. To him they must flee. But they needed to understand that he is a God of exclusivity. There are no other gods. In fact, the first three commandments start on that very premise, do they not? Have no other gods before me. You are to make no graven images, and that you are not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so blaspheme him. So he's an exclusive God. Yahweh demands, uh, the Lord here demands singular devotion. And all throughout chapter 19, and I don't have time to read it, he'll use terminology like my statutes, my ordinances my sabbath again underscoring his exclusivity the new testament equivalent to that we find in passages like john 14:6 i am the way i am the truth i am the life and no man comes to the father but by me or acts 4:12 neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name given under heaven whereby among men whereby we must be saved He's an exclusive God. His sovereignty encompasses all that is. Because he's an exclusive God, he does not tolerate competing or contradictory views of who he is. He would not and he does not take kindly to the pluralism of the day which essentially states that truth is found in a buffet of beliefs and we just go through the buffet line and we take a sampling of this and a sampling of that and somehow we add it all up on our plates and somehow that bounces out to truth. Not so in God's economy. So holiness finds its genesis in God. Further, holiness is a statement about God's exclusive nature and character, and it's sovereignly expressed through his laws. He knows what is best for us, just as the parent knows what is best for the toddler. That leads us to a third timeless truth concerning holiness, and it's simply this: holiness is meant to be applied. Again, it's not mystical. It's not esoteric. God's laws are directly informed by his character for his people and that specific context. There is no ambiguity. There is no abstraction where God's law is concerned. The problem isn't with God's law. The problem is with us. He defines these laws. He regulates. And the essence of these laws that he gave ancient Israel were meant to regulate two basic relationships. Firstly, the vertical relationship that they had with God himself. And secondly, the horizontal relationship that they had with one another and those around them. So what does it practically mean or look like when we say holiness is meant to be applied? Well, firstly, it means this. It is impossible to divorce ethics and morality from theology since morality is rooted in who God is. You can't possibly have a cohesive standard of ethics and morality divorced and separated from who God is. And he gives them a good taste of this all throughout these 37 verses in Leviticus 19. For 16 times in these 37 verses, he uses this recurring phrase or formula, I am the Lord. Or it's the elongated, unabridged version, I am the Lord your God. And when he uses that terminology, he's underscoring something, he's emphasizing something. Why are they to do these things? Because I am the Lord your God, he says, over and over and over again. And when humanity severs the tie between ethics and theology, do you know what we get? The mess we see today. We get abortion on demand. Euthanasia pansexuality, self-identified genders, redefined marriage, and now we even have self-identified ethnicities. Choose your ethnicity. In the midst of this mess and absurdity I've decided to re-self-identify as a trans-chronological. I am a 16-year-old boy trapped in a 54-year-old man's body. And I'd like to go down to the local high school, sign up as a high school junior, parentally, because I'm always 16. And I'd love to see the response. How would you like to have that guy in your class? And then just to make it interesting, I'd turn it into a reality program. You might as well make a little money while you're at it. And there would be people who would say, that's not possible. That's absurd. And all I would have to say is, I can't help it. I was born this way. You see, the further away from God we get, the farther from reality we travel until we reach the theater of the absurd. Guess what? We've arrived. Holiness is meant to be applied. Therefore, we cannot divorce morality and ethics from God and who He is. Further, to say that holiness is meant to be applied means this it means His laws are well ordered and consistent with His person and the creation that He has made. You see, it is sin. That brings disorder. It is sin that brings disunity. It is sin that brings confusion and contradiction. It is God's law that brings order, unity, and symmetry out of the abyss and morass of all of this confusion. Salvation, after all, is a return to creation, recreation, where God's order, God's symmetry, and God's unity prevail therefore as those who are blood-bought believers this applies to the Old Testament saint as well as the New Testament saint there should be order to our lives there should be an orderliness in our time, an orderliness in our priorities an orderliness in our relationships, an orderliness in the mundane affairs of everyday life and living and an orderliness in our spiritual lives As I preached through the entire book of Leviticus, one thing that I learned is there's order to God and order to the way worship should be done. That is why he prescribed it the way he did. It may not make sense to our 21st century mindset, but it certainly made sense to them. At its most basic level in our household, when we talk about the holiness of God as it pertains to his orderliness, it extends to... Do I squeeze the toothpaste tube from the middle or from the bottom up? I have, two, I have two young adults, and for some unknown reason, they seem to think it's to be squeezed from the middle. And I have tried to retrain them and sent them to toothpaste tube squeezing re-education camp. And there have been times I've walked into the bathroom and I would yell out of the bathroom corridor, what ungodliness. (laughs) I'm not really that obsessive compulsive. The point is he's a God of order and he demands a certain amount of measured order from those who are his saints. Holiness is to be applied Fourth timeless truth about holiness is this. Holiness is summarized in Leviticus 19. I don't have time to walk through all of that, but it's really where worship meets walk. The first 16 chapters are all about sacrifice and the sacrificial system and the Arianic priesthood. And all of the order and all of the sequence in which these events were supposed to take place, it's all outlined in the first 16 chapters. When we get to chapter 17, we swing on a hinge to the more practical elements of the book. It's as if God is saying, Worship first, then walk. You must be before you do, doctrine before duty. Concept of who I am before the concrete of how you live that out. It's all there. Sacrifice first, then service. In fact, you see that in verse 3. After he tells them to be holy as he is holy. If you just follow along with me for a few verses here in Leviticus 19, he says this. Every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. There's that divine formula that underscores this with an emphaticness that is almost incomprehensible to us. Verse 4, do not turn to idols or make yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. If you skip down to verse 9, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. If you skip down to verse uh, 17, he says this, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is just representative. Representative. Of the laws that he gave them, but in one way, shape, form, or another, all of these laws somehow apply to the holiness of God and are evidenced of living a holy life in the presence of a holy God. Of course, he goes on, and he talks about not sowing two kinds of seed in the, or two different kinds of seed in the same field, or wearing clothing that is that is woven of two different kinds of cloth. Now we stand back and scratch our heads and we don't understand that because the rationale here is not given to us. The point is, he's trying to teach them a simple lesson. That separation, which is what holiness is at its very core, applies to every area of life. Even to the sowing of seed. Even to the weaving of fabric and the making of clothes. So that when they put on their clothes in the morning, they are reminded that they are to live lives of separation for God that day. And when they go to their fields and they sow that seed, they are reminded by that law that they are to be a separated people and different from the people around them. I believe that's what it means. But this is the warp and the woof. The very summary of what holiness is. That leads us to a fifth timeless truth concerning holiness, which is this. Holiness is comprehensive to all of life and living. I've just touched on that. It is to pervade every nook and cranny of their lives and our lives today. And while at first glance, chapter 19 seems to have some very arbitrary and out-of-place laws... We can identify with some, and others are very strange and awkward to us in our context and where we live in history. But to the ancient Hebrew, to those who lived 3,500 years ago, what this taught them and the reason for this vast variety of laws was to teach them that they were not to compartmentalize their laws or their lives. That there was no area of their life that was to be untouched by God, but that he had full access to every part of their lives and living. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern societies outside of Israel, this was not the case. In fact, when you begin to study the background behind all of this, you understand part of the reason why God gave them these laws because in ancient Near Eastern antiquity in the pagan cultures they would have two separate legal statutes one was a civil code and the other was their sacred code for religion and never the twain shall meet and so it was easy for the average pagan 3,500 years ago to divorce his secular life from his sacred life The one did not necessarily intrude upon the other. But God is giving them a vast array of laws here. Some of them are sacrificial laws that dealt with their religion and their worship. Others were day-to-day living laws. Others were more abstract and conceptual But the point is that every area of their life was somehow to be impacted by this and that they couldn't isolate the sacred from the secular. So we have this great mix of laws in chapter 19. Some of them ceremonial. Some of them civil. Some of them a combination of both. The point God is to be in all of my life. There is no stone unturned where God is concerned and where my life is the emphasis. For us in the New Testament, we have a wonderful corollary. Remember when Paul said, whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, you do all to the glory of God every area of our lives. In the day-to-day choices, circumstances, and situations that present themselves, we should reflect in some way on the holy character of God and figure out how, the, how holiness is applied to that given situation. Finally, finally, Not only is holiness comprehensive to all of life and living, but a sixth timeless truth of holiness is this. Holiness is the believer's high calling. Leviticus 19 applies to a group of people who lived 3,500 years ago, but we live in the 21st century. So how does all of this apply? Well, turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter certainly referenced what we just looked at in Leviticus 19. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, and beginning in verse 14 of 1 Peter 1, Peter says this to a persecuted group of believers in what is now a modern-day central Turkey in Cappadocia. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Why? Verse 16. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This applies to us as New Covenant, New Testament believers What God said to these ancient Hebrews 3,500 years ago still echoes throughout history today. Holiness is the believer's high calling. And it's inclusive to all believers in all places at all times. It's a corporate calling for those who are God's. The entire ancient Hebrew community was governed by the same law. There were no exemptions. There were no loopholes. There were not two separate law codes, one for the leaders and one for the people. Even the strangers and aliens in their midst were governed by the same law. It is no different today. We are all governed by the same laws and commands that Christ himself gave in the New Testament. It's inclusive to all of us, whether you're in Cape Town, South Africa, or Hollister, California. It also means that holiness is initiated by grace, by God's elective grace. This presupposes a special elective relationship that responds to the demands and dictates of the covenant that God gives his people. So that when these ancient Jews were to obey this law, it was not meant to be obeyed out of drudgery, but rather out of obedience, out of gratitude for what God had done through his covenant that he made with these people. Well, God's made a covenant with us. It's not the Mosaic covenant, but it is the new covenant. And the commands that he's given us are to be seen in the framework of that covenant. They should not be grievous to us, but rather they should be a joy. They should be a delight because of so great a Savior and so great a salvation. Holiness is now redefined, of course, in a New Testament context. It is true we're not under the Levitical law in the way that the ancient Jews were. And law was never meant to be a means of salvation for them. Rather, it was an outworking of the salvation that they already enjoyed enjoyed as a result of the covenant that God made in Exodus 19 and 20 with them. Christ is the end of that law. He is the culmination. He fulfilled every righteous demand and mandate in the law. And we now serve the law of Christ as his blood-bought possessions. And this means, among other things, that because he fulfilled the law, this Old Testament Levitical code and all of the other 613 laws are now reinterpreted through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. So it isn't that these laws don't apply to us, but rather now that these laws, ancient laws, have Jesus Christ superimposed over them, and they are now reappropriated in our context, which is a non-theocratic, non-Mosaic, covenanted, non-nationalistic context called the Church of Jesus Christ. So it isn't that they don't apply, but that they apply in a whole new way. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. And he goes on to say, it is therefore profitable. And it's profitable for four things, doctrine, exhortation, edification, and training in righteousness, which is ethical living. So it applies in some way in a new covenant context. What's the grand conclusion on all of this? Holiness finds its beginning in God. It is conveyed through his exclusivity as God. It is expressed to his people in regulative principles called the law. It is summarized in Leviticus 19, it is therefore comprehensive in its scope, applying to every area of our lives, and it is the believer's primary calling to seek to be holy and to live holy because he himself is holy. I can summarize it with the words of Christ. When he said this in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 37, And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. It's all wrapped up in that. Loving God and loving those around us. Let me conclude with this, 1 Peter 2.9. You might be sitting there saying, brother, you're, you're a missionary. You didn't preach on missions this morning. Well, let me conclude on that, that note. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He's quoting from Exodus 19. Verses 5 through 6. And he goes on, So that, and here's the reason why they are chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, at the last, ancient Israel's conduct was to serve as a witness to the nations around them. And if we are to serve as a light in the 21st century to the world around us, we must understand our calling to be holy as he himself is holy. This is the catalyst for evangelism. This is the catalyst for missions. This is the catalyst for Christian service, to be holy as he himself is holy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful opportunity. I thank you for these dear saints here in Hollister, California, at Grace Bible Church. And Father, I just pray that you would bless them, that you would strengthen them. I thank you that you're doing a great work here. I thank you for the elders that you have raised up and the deacons and those who serve in various capacities within this local body. And Father, I pray that you would help them to excel still even more. I pray that you would help us all to be holy as you are holy to understand that more today than we did yesterday and to understand how that applies to our day-to-day life and living. Father, may our creed be that whether we eat or whether we drink or whatsoever we do, that we would mindfully, consciously do it for your glory and our earthly good. Father, I just pray now that you would just take your word and apply it to each heart and life at their, given, at their given point of need. And Father, if there would be one here this morning who does not know Christ, help them to see that they cannot possibly hope to be holy until they first experience the cleansing flood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of their sins. May you be pleased by your love and through your spirit to draw them to the foot of your son's cross this day where you would convict them and where they would experience the new birth, new life in Christ, where old things would be passed away and behold, all things would be made new. Father, would you please do this? Not for us, but for your glory. And Lord, we pray it in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.